city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. I've heard post-traumatic stress disorder described in a number of different ways. An invisible wound, a mental war that never ends, even a normal reaction to extreme trauma like bleeding is normal after being stabbed. Whatever words we use to describe it, its impact is real. About one half of all U.S. adults will experience at least one traumatic event in their lives, and up to 20% could develop symptoms of PTSD. According to the National Institute of Health, an estimated 3.6% of U.S. adults, and that's about a little over 12 million people, had PTSD last year. This is the topic of today's show. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on the law and psychology of post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm delighted to introduce our guest, Dr. Sanjay Adia, who's a forensic psychiatrist with McGovern Medical School at UT Health in Houston, Texas, and an expert witness on PTSD. Welcome to the show, Sanjay. Hi, thank you for your invitation, Joni. Well, we're delighted to have you. This is such an interesting topic. It's a term that most of us are familiar with. We've all heard of PTSD, but I think it's often misunderstood. So let's start out by just giving us a good definition of what it is. What is a psychiatric disorder that one encounters one month after experiencing or witnessing a traumatic event? And traumatic events could include a natural disaster, a serious accident, such as a motor vehicle accident, a terrorist act, during the course of war or combat, and also sexual assault or other violent personal assault. So these are some pretty extreme events. And are you saying that these are absolutely necessary in order for somebody to develop PTSD? A lot of times people will throw around the term PTSD after a divorce, breakup, job loss. And in those cases, it will not be PTSD. If you have significant symptoms after a stressor such as those, it will be a adjustment disorder. So a lot, a lot of, that's one of the misconceptions of PTSD. Oh, the, the breakup was so traumatic. Um, it could be experienced that way, but, but technically to have the PTSD diagnosis, you have to have these conditions where there is a threat of death, injury, or sexual assault. You know, it's interesting because years ago when I was in private practice, I do remember there being kind of a backlash because it seemed like this kind of gateway event, this trauma did for a while get stretched. And I certainly saw plenty of people who had came into my office with a diagnosis of PTSD. And then when I began talking with them, I was looking at what the main event was. It oftentimes was something like, you know, a horrible breakup or they got a con- concussion or something that would be upsetting to all of us, but didn't meet this criteria of being a life-threatening or at least perceived life-threatening event. That's true. And some other um, of these gateway criteria, so to speak, or or the definition of trauma would be, uh, for example, a first responder or or police officer that encounters details about traumatic events. So they don't have to have direct um, exposure to the criteria. But for example, if someone is viewing videotapes of assault from their office and is a repeated 
um, exposure, they could develop PTSD as well. You don't have to be the recipient of this traumatic event you're saying. You can be somebody who witnessed this event. Yes, and I don't know if you're familiar with the forensic psychiatrist, uh, John Bradford in Ottawa, Canada. He watched a video of assault and he thought he was immune to PTSD. And I do sometimes as well when I'm seeing people accused of murder or evaluating such people, I think I have a tough skin. But, and it took two years for this uh, psychiatrist to actually realize he had PTSD and receive treatment. He actually started drinking, he became suicidal, and then finally he received treatment. So he didn't directly encounter PTSD, but from talking to people or watching those videos, that's how he um, developed the symptoms of PTSD through his line of work. Now, what are the implications? I have several friends and colleagues who are in law enforcement or they're emergency medical responders. And what are the implications for individuals who almost by their job description are going to be exposed to potentially life-threatening events, either witnessing them or actually being involved in them, it's just almost inevitable. It is, and I, I would recommend to people that are feeling the stress from encountering these situations is to, a lot of these, a lot of employers would have an employment assistance program to go and talk to them and find help early rather than waiting till it leads to a, a catastrophe. You know, violence, suicide, alcohol abuse, for example. So what, learn some what, are, what are the symptoms? The symptoms, I like to think of them in symptom clusters. You know, the, of course, you have to have the trauma, which we just talked about. And then uh, one month after the trauma, you develop these symptom clusters. Uh, symptoms include intrusive thoughts, which are or experiencing phenomena, such as nightmares, flashbacks, or involuntary repeated memories. And uh, these could be sometimes the first symptoms I hear about. I often will ask them about, yeah, the nightmares are waking me up. This is common in uh, PTSD. Also, you have avoidance of reminders. Um, you avoid people, places, situation. Also avoid talking about the trauma. Uh, for example, if someone got in a car accident and developed PTSD, uh, they would avoid cars, for example. Or a lot of times it has occupational for example, if a police officer had PTSD in the line of duty, he might avoid cops, police shows, and so forth. Another symptom cluster would be negative thoughts and feelings. You have, you have distorted beliefs. For example, I am bad. Uh, no one can be trusted. There could be ongoing fear, horror, anger, guilt, or shame. Also, People with PTSD, they'll have much less interest in pleasurable activities. Um, they're not going to enjoy spending time with others, or they're not going to enjoy sports or other. Actually, and these are some of the activities that will help them cope with the uh, PTSD. And also, there will be a feeling of detachment from others. And then the fourth symptom cluster is alterations in arousal and reactivity. For example, become irritable. They could have reckless behavior. And then hypervigilance, meaning they're always on edge. In a restaurant, they'll always have to sit with the wall behind their back because they, they don't want, they're always on guard, on edge. And they get startled real easily. If they'll hear a loud sound, they'll mistake it for a gunshot and that can cause physical symptoms. I would imagine that many people listening, and I've had these thoughts myself, that when you go through a really traumatic, life-threatening event, it's pretty normal to be upset about it and to be disturbed by it. And so how do you tease out the normal response 
to an unnatural event from PTSD? Jody, that's a great question. So it's, it's very natural for one to be shooken up after a traumatic event. That's a very natural response. But if, if these symptoms continue past a month and also it's causing problems at work, at school, or with the relationships, it's causing dysfunction in the life, then that's when it becomes PTSD. So it sounds like it's the severity of the symptoms. It's also, I would imagine, the duration or the amount of time those symptoms persist. The symptoms have to be at least one month. And most cases of PTSD, you'll get the symptoms within three months of the trauma. Some people will have a delayed expression after six months, but most people will have the symptoms within three months. But the bottom line is you have to have the symptoms for one month. Now, there's a time in my professional career when it seemed like there was this kind of common wisdom that if somebody had had horrible trauma in their life, whether it was a rape, whether it was coming back from war, a horrible car accident, you know, watching a child die in an accident, for example, that PTSD was almost inevitable. Yet we know now that that's not the case, that a minority of individuals get PTSD, but that the majority of people who go through even these horrendous events don't. So why do some people get it and others don't? There could be pre-traumatic factors, traumatic factors, and post-traumatic factors. For example, some of the pre-traumatic factors is your temperament, which is, did you have childhood emotional problems or a pre-existing diagnosis? It could be environmental, for example, low socioeconomic status, um, your cultural background, or family history of PTSD. Also, women and those exposed at a younger age also have a higher predisposition to PTSD. And I believe some of the data shows women are twice as likely as men to have PTSD. But of course, it's also the um, increased uh, risk of sexual assault, which generally occurs with women, that also I believe is causes the increased incidence of PTSD in women. Then there could be traumatic effects. Uh, the context of the trauma is: it, was it in wartime? For example, did the soldier kill other people too? Because that could also affect the expression of PTSD. If there's sexual trauma, so the the context of the trauma is also the dose of the trauma. Someone could be a prisoner of war and uh, have extensive trauma over years versus a one-time motor vehicle accident. So that could affect the symptoms. And then also you want to look at the post-traumatic factors. Uh, for example, inappropriate coping uh, mechanisms. Uh, a lot of times people with PTSD will try to drink away their diagnosis or symptoms, but which usually does not work. And also some of the, the other post-traumatic factors, if usually someone that has PTSD would have had something called acute stress disorder which occurs the three days to a month after the trauma. You know, it's interesting because I think that we would all agree that all traumas are not created equal. There was a really interesting study that came out in January. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it basically looked at 63 survivors of gun violence and compared them to survivors of life-threatening, very serious car accidents. And what they found was that gunshot survivors were significantly more likely to have PTSD symptoms six months afterwards than people who had lived through a very, very serious car accident. And I wonder what your thoughts are about why some events might predispose us more than others to develop symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. I believe it's the context of the trauma. Someone who's shot would maybe in a environment or situation that's higher 
stress. Um, usually, a car accident just happens out of the blue, and it's thought it's conceptualized as some as an accident versus a gunshot. That's more violence happening on you. But I think it's the context. And what I noticed is there's a big uh, difference. For example, a lot of the the veterans I treated or evaluated, they would become angry. Um, they'd be more likely to drink. And then, as opposed to some of the work I do for Physician for Human Rights, I do. There's one evaluation I did where it was a basically a war victim from Guatemala. Half her family was killed and murdered by the right-wing government junta, and the other half by the left-wing rebels. And then she was basically trafficked to America by her uncle, basically sex trafficked. And she was she never touched a drop of alcohol in her life. She was not violent. She was more depressed, fearful closed in, even though they both had PTSD, the veterans and her, but the, how they looked looked dramatically different. Interesting. How often do other diagnoses come into play? So for example, there's the possibility of coping through alcohol or drug use. In a lot of the veterans, I, I noticed they, a lot of them started drinking or a lot of the ones in the Vietnam conflict, they use drugs there, opioids or marijuana, and they developed that. So I saw that. And uh, that's a good point to bring up coexisting uh, diagnoses. I also often, and as probably in your experience as well, almost all the cases of PTSD I see uh, also find major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and maybe even panic attacks as well. And usually the depression and anxiety will occur after the traumatic event along with the PTSD. I think in some of these situations, it kind of becomes a chicken or the egg. Like what comes first? Is the trauma causing, we would think, of course, being a trigger for PTSD, dependent upon a lot of other factors. And then you have these other things that could be either coping mechanisms or could be coexisting disorders themselves. Or maybe they could start out as coping mechanisms, but turn into additional problems. That's that's true. Yeah. With the alcohol and the substance abuse, maybe someone had a, a milder they use alcohol in the past every now and then to cope, but once they have PTSD, they're using it more and more often. So they could, and then that'll develop the diagnosis of alcohol use disorder. I agree with you there. One thing I wanted to mention is the role of social support, not only in terms of potentially buffering somebody from develop some of these symptoms, but also in terms of helping them cope with them and wanting to get your thoughts on that. We did a show uh, recently about sexual abuse and particularly sexual abuse in the church. And one of the things that we talked about there with children is that whether the other parent, if it was, if one of the parents was a perpetrator, the response of the other parent, either supportive or denying had such an impact on the way that child was able to recover. It seemed like there was a huge boost in credibility and, and feeling of being loved and just seeing the world as a more nuanced place where there are bad things that happen, but there are good things that happen too, versus a child who not only has been victimized in a sexual way, but then once that person discloses to the other parent, feels re-victimized or victimized again by not being believed. And I would think there might be some parallels, not necessarily in terms of believability, but just in terms of like, if I have these PTSD symptoms, which are so distressing anyway, and I don't feel like I have the social support to help me with that, that could really make that so much worse. I agree. That's true. And a lot of times with people with PTSD, they'll 
not want to leave the house, they'll isolate. So it'd be good to have social support. Otherwise, they'll be very isolated. And that's that would not be a good outcome for someone with PTSD. Do you think that support needs to come or should ideally come from other people who've had similar experiences? Or do you think it doesn't matter so much as it does the social support in general? I would imagine both uh, would be good. Uh, it'd be good to um, be in groups and see that you're not alone. Because a lot of times people with PTSD think that they're the only ones that the symptoms are happening. But if it if they're go to a PTSD support group, then they could see that it's a normal reaction to stress. And I often tell patients where the human body's not designed for being shot at, being in war type situations, being sexually assaulted, it's not. And I think that's uh, I think that's important for someone to go to both get groups, but also have family social support as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I had a friend who was married to a man who had gone to Vietnam and they were very young when he left and had just gotten married. And I remember her telling me stories when he came back of how different he seemed to her. And she told me a story at one point of being at some fireworks the 4th of July at a party and all of a sudden seeing her husband when the fireworks went off, just dropping and getting underneath the table and how that was the first time that she really realized this was something so serious because it was in public that this happened and he was a private person and he was just mortified by this. I'm wondering with the work that you've done, like the worst case you've ever seen of someone with PTSD. I remember a colleague of mine was admitting a patient to the VA. This is one of the most extreme cases of PTSD I heard about was uh, this, basically this, this veteran was marching outside his house with a gun basically to guard his house. And it seemed like he was in a flashback or maybe there was another diagnosis associated with the, I'm not certain, but it seemed very extreme that he was admitted to the inpatient unit for that type of behavior. Normally, the main reason you admit someone to the inpatient hospital for with, with PTSD if they're suicidal or or if they're in alcohol withdrawal, those are some of the reasons we'd admit someone. But I thought that was very extreme. Sounds like that. We're going to take a quick break. You did a great job of laying up a foundation for understanding PTSD and what that looks like. When we come back, I really want to move into the forensic arena and talk about when PTSD might enter the courtroom. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Sanjay Adia. We'll be right back on Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. 
Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Thought of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our esteemed guest for today is Dr. Sanjay Adia, who is a forensic psychiatrist and also an expert witness on PTSD. Our topic today is the psychology and law around post-traumatic stress disorder. And we spent the first part of our show talking about what PTSD is and what it's not. I now want to shift gears and move into the intersection between PTSD and the law. And I will tell you, Sanjay, whenever I see PTSD in the media, it is often linked to violence. So an easy example of that is the American Sniper movie with Chris Kyle, who is a vet himself and ends up being killed by a vet he was trying to help. And there's this implication that this vet who killed him had PTSD. Just this past week, I read about a murder-suicide where the mother of the perpetrator had allegedly called 911 to say her son, who had a gun, had PTSD. So we certainly hear about it when it happens. But what is the relationship, in your opinion, between PTSD and violence? That's a great question, Jody. So in my experience, PTSD, yes, it does increase the risk of violence, but we have to remember not everyone with PTSD or majority of people with PTSD are not violent. And majority of people who are violent don't have PTSD. That's such an important point. So are there other factors that might make someone more prone to violence than PTSD? Um, yes. For example, substance use, has, I think, has a stronger correlation with violence. Uh, someone with PTSD may start inappropriately coping by, by drinking or using drugs, and that could elevate the risk. Also, if they have certain personality traits or um, diagnosis, such as antisocial personality disorder, that has, could cause um, PTSD. And when you're talking about violence, a lot of people, it's good to dissect what violence is. Is it premeditated or is it impulsive? And I, I think PTSD could, is linked more closely linked to impulsive violence rather than premeditated violence. If you're having premeditated violence, it's, it, there's probably something else. So a lot of times people focus on the PTSD and they miss the forest. There's a lot more going on with the person than just their diagnosis that could be causing the violence. So in your professional opinion, how would this work? In other words, what would there be about these PTSD symptoms that might make some people who have them more prone to this impulsive, reactive type of violence? One of the symptoms of PTSD is irritability, and that could cause impulsive violence. Also, some of the negative beliefs that someone might have, some of the pessimistic beliefs that could also potentially um, drive them towards violence. Also, if they have other diagnoses, um, such as depression or brain injury, for example, could have increased irritability and they could also have PTSD as well. And that could increase the risk of violence. So when you're practicing, 
what kinds of civil cases do you see that typically involve a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder? Some of the cases include motor vehicle accidents or personal injury cases, CPTSD. They'll have other symptoms. They might have brain injury. They might have depression. And then also PTSD, they'll have a fear of getting in the car. They'll not be able to work. They might be on disability. Another case I saw was a Defense Space Act case, which the Defense Space Act is basically workman's comp for independent military contractors. A lady, she was in, in Iraq and Afghanistan as a private contractor, and she encountered blasts, deaths of her comrades, and she developed really severe PTSD. And, and my opinion was that I think she can work, but not in a combat setting, because that would re-traumatize her, and I don't think she was... Um, I wouldn't have recommended her to go back into a combat zone. And the other civil cases I see in immigration cases, for example, the one I mentioned earlier, I see some of the most severe cases of PTSD. I once examined a asylum case involving a, some, an individual from Angola, and he was tortured uh, because he was in the, I guess, the wrong political persuasion, and he had really severe PTSD. This is a huge diversity of different kinds of cases. So, for example, in the accident case, somebody is coming to you, an attorney, I would imagine, is coming to you, and they're Mm -hmm. saying, my client has a diagnosis of PTSD, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're saying, does my client have PTSD? And what is the legal question they would like your input on in that particular case? Basically, causation and damages. So in attorneys, they like PTSD because it's one of the few diagnoses that is required to have uh, trauma, which is a, you know, event that attorneys will be interested in. And then also the damages. So oftentimes attorneys would hire an economics expert to look at what the differences in their trajectory of earning capacity now. And, and then if it wasn't for the PTSD, what that would be, and that could be millions of dollars over the course of a lifetime. So also, there could be other aspects that could you could attach monetary damages to as well. It could affect a relationship. You know, it could lead to divorce potentially. So those are some of the aspects attorneys will be interested in. So how do you tease this out? Because this is pretty complicated. So let's say, again, getting back to the accident case, somebody's coming to you and you're evaluating this person. And let's say you determine, yes, this person had a horrible car accident. There's the gateway kind of event has been met. But as we discussed earlier in the show, that's a necessary but not sufficient reason or potential indicator of PTSD. So what other factors do you have to consider? Because again, given that most people who even have these horrible situations don't develop PTSD, what do you look for in deciding, you know, did this particular car accident cause this, these particular symptoms? That's a very good question, Joni. A lot of people are hung up on the technicalities of the, or the, how PTSD sounds. Sometimes someone might not meet the criteria for PTSD because they're missing one criteria, and it, but they have all the other symptoms of PTSD. So I still think, and that would be other stressor or trauma-related disorder. I might be off by word there, but there's a lesser diagnosis. But I think instead of focusing on what the diagnosis is, I think what's important to look at is the level of dysfunction. And what I look for is I'll look at the um, employment records or the if someone's in school, look at the school records and you could see a decline if there is PTSD or, or other diagnosis that's from, from the trauma. And you'll see a correlation like 
before and after. Absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, how does that differ from, for example, a torture case or an asylum case that you've worked on? So to, uh, in a torture asylum case, those are immigration cases. So uh, in those cases, basically my report will help bolster their claim. For example, if they're sent back to their country, that their symptoms will get worse and then or they'll receive better care here. So I find that that was the case. But if you over-report certain details and they're not consistent, you know, sometimes someone might misreport or like I, two people attack me or no, three people attack me. So you have to be very cautious about how you put things in reports because you don't want them to be, because the immigration judge might say, oh, this is, this story is inconsistent. So even though they're being truthful, because a lot of times with people with PTSD might miss a detail or the recollection might be um, off by a minor detail. This brings me right to my next question, which is, you know, you and I both work in the court arena quite a bit, and we both know that whenever you talk about forensic anything, we have to talk about the possibility of somebody faking or malingering. That's something that I always have to consider whenever I'm evaluating somebody, either in the civil or the criminal arena. How often do you come across that in PTSD cases, and how easy is it to fake? I think with PTSD, if it's it's possible for someone to fake their symptoms, and there's some of the different uh, situations that might come up is someone might might have depression, but they're misattributing it as PTSD and, and blaming the trauma when it was just someone had depression before the trauma. Another situation is you might have someone who's actually has genuine PTSD, but they're actually exaggerating their symptoms or elevating their PTSD in a such a way. And then there's, of course, malingering PTSD, which means someone is doing it for financial gain or, or um, another legal, you know, for example, they want to uh, get out of jail earlier. So that'd be malingered PTSD. But there's also some people that would have something called factitious PTSD. Then they're not trying to uh, malinger for any devious reason, but they're trying to uh, bring attention to themselves. Maybe it's a cry for help. You know, that's how they try to get treatment or help or attention. So that would be someone who's trying to play the sick role. You're right. It's not always either or. I mean, sometimes it's kind of a gray area or it's both A and B. Like you said, when you have somebody who legitimately does seem to have some mental health issues or may have PTSD, and yet, in your opinion, when you evaluate them and maybe look at their functional ability and how they're doing in their life, it appears that what they're reporting is much worse than what's actually being manifested kind of in the real world, which kind of brings me to another point. It's something I say over and over again on this show, and that is when you are doing an evaluation from a forensic point of view, how important it is to look for collateral information the trust but verify kind of motto where, you know, I'm going to hope and try to assume to some extent this person is coming in telling me the truth about what's happening. But I also know how important it is to look for other sources, documents, emails, talking to friends, talking to family, getting medical records, mental health records, et cetera, to just document and create a timeline of when those symptoms began. And like you were saying, how is this person functioning and how were they functioning before this happened? That's very true, Jody. And you you might get collateral information from anywhere. Like hypothetically, let's say there's a case of a, 
um, Iraqi war veteran. He's claiming he has the worst PTSD. He can't go anywhere near anything that reminds him of Iraq. And then you go onto his Facebook and you see him smiling next to the picture of the Sphinx in Egypt and eating a shawarma or whatnot. But what, what I often see when I'm examining a um, genuine case of PTSD is when they're talking about their symptoms, you could see the distress on their face. You could actually, you could feel it. You know, I think you may have noticed that as well when you're talking to someone with PTSD, because it's not easy for them to talk about their trauma. That is really a really good point. And, and you're right. I mean, I think that we all develop coping mechanisms. And just because somebody isn't sobbing hysterically as I'm evaluating them, doesn't mean I'm discounting what they're saying. But you're right. You would expect if somebody's reporting symptoms as severe as some of the PTSD symptoms that you would see at least some of the anxiety and physical tension and those kinds of things during the interview, because you're asking them really to relive some of that trauma as part of the evaluation. So it would be surprising um, to not see some of that in there. True. And, and a, lot, a lot of times when people are malingering, I notice that they will inadvertently malinger symptoms that are not PTSD. For example, if I were to do a memory test on them, they would, someone who's malingering, they might score in the range of someone with end-stage Alzheimer's. They'll score you know, five out of 30 on the MOCA, which is a memory screening test we use. But at the same time, you'll see documentation that they're able to re- or recount information that happened 10 years ago, and then you know there's inconsistency. So when you, when you start seeing a series of con- consistencies, then you that points more towards malingering. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, this has been such an excellent seg- segment talking about kind of the link when it happens between PTSD and the legal arena. I want to talk a little bit more about the civil arena and then move into the criminal arena. And then hopefully we can end the show talking a little bit about treatment and what can be done with individuals who develop PTSD, kind of looking for that, I guess, silver lining in the cloud that can be really severe for people who are suffering from PTSD. You are listening to Dr. Joni Johnston and Dr. Sanjay Adia. Our topic today is the psychology and law of post-traumatic stress disorder, and you are listening to Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud. We'll be right back. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Threat of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest today is Dr. Sanjay Audia, and our topic for the day is the psychology and law of post-traumatic stress disorder. So far, we've talked a lot about what it is, what it looks like, coexisting disorders that often occur, and then we talked quite a bit about how PTSD might be involved in the legal system, primarily in civil cases, uh, whether it's somebody seeking disability claims or seeking damages or being involved in an immigration case. But I want to shift gears now and talk about my area of where I tend to operate most often, which is the criminal arena. 
post-traumatic stress disorder and the insanity defense. Can that work? Does that work? So, my, Joni, my belief is that the NGRI is reserved for the most severe cases of mental illness. And even someone with schizophrenia, not all of them would, would are going to be not guilty by reason of insanity. The issue with PTSD is usually someone is in touch with their reality, and it's not going to affect their um, ability to understand what they're doing is wrong or able to uh, refrain from the activity. In some jurisdictions, you would have the additional volitional prong as well as the cognitive prong. So it, I would say there might be some cases of PTSD out there. So for example, someone injuring or killing someone in the, in the throes of a flashback. I don't know if I've seen any direct examples of it, but other than that, I, I can't imagine how PTSD would cause someone to be disordered to the extent that it'll, that they would be able to commit the crime without um, any responsibility. However, I could see how PTSD could be a mitigating factor. Yeah, I want to come back to that. It's interesting because I would agree. I have yet to see PTSD being used successfully in an insanity plea. I heard of uh, someone talking about a case in Oregon where someone murdered someone in bed with their wife during a PTSD flashback, and then he was sentenced to the uh, state hospital. And then magically, two months later, he was cured and no longer had PTSD and was released. And then I think after that, there was hesitation to, for people to accept that as an insanity plea. We, we all know in this, in this field that insanity is such a difficult plea to be successful at anyway. And that it tends to be successful when it is, which is only about 25% of the time in cases where somebody had a, a psychotic disorder typically before the crime. So I can certainly see how PTSD, again, would be very difficult. Even if someone had it, it would be difficult to argue because of the very stringent criteria about it, how it could be successful. I ran across a case recently. I just want to get your thoughts on it. I mean, I think it's an ongoing case that I am not personally involved in it, but it involved a woman who was accused not of committing violence herself, but somebody that she knew had killed a police officer, and she was charged with hiding his gun in the basement of the house and she's denying this and what's interesting about it and how it relates to our show today is that her attorney is arguing that this is a woman who had a history of childhood physical abuse severe and that this physical abuse occurred in the basement of the home and he is wanting to bring testimony basically to say that here is somebody who, because of her post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary to this childhood trauma that she had, she was physically unable to go into a basement. And therefore, she could not have been the person to hide this gun. So I think this is just an interesting, interesting case. And I wonder, as somebody who works in this area, what your thoughts would be about that? I don't think you could say that just because she has um, PTSD, she's unable to go into the basement. I mean, it's possible she went to the basement with, but with great level level of stress. You know, um, she could have had PTSD and had f- flashbacks while she was in the basement, but doesn't mean that she's not able to go down the steps. I'd be more convinced if she was in a wheelchair, and not able to go down in the basement than. for the PTSD. I agree with you. And I think the issue I have with that argument, although I understand why the attorney might use that, is that 
it's really dangerous, I think, to link any diagnosis with a specific behavior. And unfortunately, for those of us who are mental health professionals, we see that happen all the time where we see a violent crime being committed. And then the first, particularly some of the mass shootings that have occurred, and then immediately there's this like, oh, the person must be mentally ill. Like that's some kind of explanation for a violent act. I think it's dangerous to, to suggest that because somebody has a certain diagnosis, they were unable to perform a specific act or a specific behavior. That's a very good point, Joni. And often the public does not see the reverse. I see people, People with mental illness actually be becoming victims of violence. A, a good example is a battered woman who's, you know, and you know that like a lot of times they have PTSD and you'll see them over and over getting involved in these relationships where they're abused. And I think their PTSD makes them more vulnerable. They become depressed, um, unable to stand up for themselves, maybe disabled, unable to work. So they're more de dependent on their partners. And so I think it, if you look at the interpersonal violence or IPV, PTSD is actually a factor that keeps someone as a victim. Yeah, I agree. I think that's definitely true and probably true really of mental illness in general, that we all know that people who have severe mental health disorders are more likely to be victims of crime than they are perpetrators of crime. You alluded earlier in our show to mitigation, and we've talked a little bit about how difficult it is to use post-traumatic stress disorder as a defense in the criminal arena it would, make, it would be a pretty tough road to hoe. But I think there's that argument can be made that there are situations when it perhaps should be used in mitigation. So maybe help our audience understand, first of all, what mitigation means from a legal standpoint and how PTSD might be successfully used um, to argue for a reduced sentence or probation or whatever. So from the perspective of someone who doesn't have a law degree, but basically mitigation means there's usually sentencing guidelines and, you know, there's some leeway. You could either send some the minimum sentence or maximum sentence. So there'll be a um, mitigation. Usually there'll be investigators that do mitigation work and then attorneys will, and maybe psychiatrists or psychologists will be involved in the, to help inform the, the effort. But the whole idea is even though PTSD, for example, would not cause me to be cause a crime to the insanity statutes, for example, but it could be a mitigating factor. Someone who has severe PTSD, it may have been a small factor in the crime, and that could be that could reduce their sentence, for example. So that's where it would come in. So mitigation just meaning, hey, we're trying to say that yes, this person may have committed the crime, but there are these circumstances, and so perhaps we should consider those circumstances and maybe reduce the punishment. I really like the idea. Um, and I think that's something that's just becoming, gaining some momentum, that particularly when it involves a nonviolent crime, is we're seeing these mental health courts or behavioral health courts, where when somebody comes in, uh, and of course, this is certainly more likely to be effective when they've been committed of a, mis of a misdemeanor or an, again, a nonviolent offense, but the judge actually, it isn't even about sentencing, the judge is kind of saying, we're going to divert you into a treatment program, you know, as opposed to sentencing you to 30 days in county jail to give that person a chance to, to deal or treat that mental health disorder, as opposed to it being a punishment. That, and I agree with that. I think that's a, that 
the whole idea is to reduce recidivism or to repeat the offense. And if you could somehow, you know, guide someone towards treatment rather than corrections, I think that's a good, you know, that's a benefit for both the defendant and society at large. So we've talked about post-traumatic stress disorder in general. What is complex PTSD? So complex PTSD is not formally in the, our DSM, which is the big Bible slash, I like to refer it as a dictionary, but it, so it's not in there, but it, it may in future editions, but basically complex PTSD is when you have repeated trauma, for example, someone in a war prisoner, for example, or someone who's in a human trafficking type situation, those, they could, they receive repeat trauma for years, you know, many years and it's significantly more traumatic versus one motor vehicle accident for example or you know or another cause of PTSD and when you see these cases of complex uh, PTSD you'll get you get all the same symptoms as you would with PTSD but you might get some additional I'd like to call it refer more hallmark type symptoms for example there could be a difference in one system of meanings or their belief system could be altered for example or the perception of one's perpetrators. Some people would know as the Stockholm Syndrome, for example, where they will identify and have positive feelings to their perpetrator of their trauma. Also, they have difficulty with emotional regulation, difficulty with self-perception, and there could be some disassociative symptoms that are more um, prominent than you would with with non-complex PTSD. And so, if if I'm understanding you correctly, complex PTSD primarily means a person has been experienced to life-threatening trauma over and over again on a daily basis yes it's uh, as as opposed to this one time horrible event that happened whether it was again a horrible car accident or a rape or you know being involved in a horrible battle overseas or, or whatever it's somebody who's been kind of exposed to these traumas like over and over and over again that's true. In some of these extreme cases, they, they may have lost count of the number. I mean, they may have been encountered hundreds of rapes and had, you know, been forced to abort, you know, their the pregnancy. And I think that's what other case I'm thinking about is that one perpetrator in Ohio. I'm gonna, sorry, his name escapes me. Who had locked three women in his basement? Uh, Castro. Ariel Ari- Castro. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I would imagine those women would have complex PTSD. And so the difference, or I guess the importance of, I guess, separating that out from, I guess, PTSD in general would be because you see additional symptoms? I, I, the symptoms I listed, I think they would somehow fit in the PTSD criteria, but these are what I would think of as the hallmark, and they're more prominent in, in complex PTSD. Um, that's, that's from my understanding of it. And so what are the implications, if any, if somebody has complex PTSD in terms of their functioning, in terms of recovery, and those kind of things? I would imagine that they would, their, their symptoms would be more severe and more also, they may not never recover. A lot of times people with PTSD, they may recover in six months or a year. But some of these people with complex PTSD, they would be essentially symptomatic for the rest of their life or and more severely disabled. Also, for example, someone who was for 10 years straight was constantly exposed to trauma for them to reintegrate into society be very challenging. 
Do you see the kind of battered women syndrome that was, you know, kind of something that I don't want to say popular because that really minimizes it, but it certainly came with something that we heard about in the forensic psychology profession in the past more than today. Do you see that battered women syndrome is really being complex PTSD? It could be. I'm, and again, I'm not too familiar with battered women syndrome. I haven't had um, too many battered women's cases. And I don't think that term is used as much because it was controversial. Uh, I think it was used in a lot of insanity defenses, if I'm correct, if I'm not incorrect. I think it was actually used a lot of times as almost like a self-defense where the person was, you know, the, the lawyer was kind of arguing that this person was so traumatized that even though the, the person that she murdered or attacked or whatever might have been asleep, that this person lived in this war zone, basically, and so mm-hmm. felt completely unsafe all the time. And so the, the fact that this wasn't an immediate response to being beaten and so self-defense in the way that we typically think about it, which is somebody's, you know, threatening our lives. And so we defend ourselves because we don't want to die. Uh, I think there was an attempt to, in some ways, explain that psychologically somebody might feel they were in a life-threatening situation all the time if they live in a certain environment. And I totally agree with you that, you know, we don't hear that, I guess, that term used very much anymore. But it's interesting in terms of looking at PTSD and particularly complex PTSD, there does seem to be some overlap. In the, and when you talk about the fact that when somebody is in a traumatic environment or a life-threatening environment for many years, that it's not hard to imagine that person would perceive their environment constantly as life-threatening. That's true. And I think a lot of times the someone who's not, who doesn't have PTSD, it's hard for them to understand. They think, oh, they could have just walked out of the house while the, while the man was sleeping versus having to kill him. But I think that's, that's in, if you look, if they look at it from their perspective, it's maybe that's the only way that they think they could, they could be safe. Yeah, it's really interesting. Now, I want to, of course, move into treatment and get your thoughts about that because we spent a lot of time talking about what post-traumatic stress disorder is, when it's likely to happen, how it might enter into the legal system. But I think it's important always, if possible, to end on a more positive note. So let's talk about what treatments are available for PTSD and what's effective. The two main treatments, and before we started treatments, one word I would um, like to, one aspect I like to talk about, clinically, sometimes I see PTSD underdiagnosed. Sometimes in forensic arena, you might see it overdiagnosed, but in, in um, clinically, I see it often um, underdiagnosed. They'll be diagnosed with depression and anxiety, and then they're being given a lot of sleeping medications, and still they're having trouble sleeping. And then I'll say, do you have nightmares? And they'll say, yes, I do. And then, then I realize they have PTSD. Um, but the main treatments are medications and, and therapy. And I often recommend both to patients. And regarding and medications, the main medication would be antidepressants such as uh, Prozac or SSRIs or other similar medications. Another medication that has been emerging for the past 10, 15 years is this medication called Prazosin, which is actually an older blood pressure medication, but it's used for PTSD nightmares. And of course, the PTSD, you want to, and just like you would in depression, you want to target any other associated symptoms. For example, insomnia, you might give them something to help with sleep or anger. You might give them something, for example, mood stabilizer or antipsychotic to help with those um, symptoms that are 
causing problems in their life. And the other treatment would be counseling. And of course, I would imagine, Joni, you would know um, uh, far more about counseling. I, I would, but one of the treatments that's uh, most associated with PTSD is the eye movement desensitization treatment when someone's um, told to talk about their trauma and then have their, them, uh, the pa patients asked to move their eyes from side to side and work through the trauma. That's, yeah, that's a really interesting, I think, treatment strategy. And I've certainly, there's some research to back this up. I can't say that I completely understand it myself, other than it seems like the, the, the theory behind that is to really interrupt with, you know, whether it's tapping or other kinds of rhythmic kind of things, it, almost to interrupt the brain lock that's kind of facilitating this PTSD, which we haven't talked about. And, and you know, about, about kind of the neuro biology of, of PTSD. Like why would somebody respond to a life-threatening trauma with PTSD after it's over? There's a lot of theories uh, about how PTSD develops neurobiologically. One thought is the cortisol levels, you know, that's the one of the hormones that's associated with stress. And also there's genetics to it. You know, someone might be more genetically predisposed. But I, I feel that PTSD in some cases is very, especially the treatment resistant cases, very difficult to treat. Someone might not, they have symptoms lifelong and um, I'm hoping they, with time there's more uh, effective treatments that emerge. Um, and one that, that, that you've been seeing a lot in the news is the, the, those studies with uh, psychedelics, using psychedelics in, in conjunction with psychotherapy. I think there were studies done back in the 50s and 60s, but then the, there's restrictions on those studies, but there, I see there's an emerging interest in the, that type of treatment. I've definitely seen some recent articles about that, and I think it's interesting. To, it'll be interesting to follow that and see what comes of it. I guess as a psychologist, I probably tend to err on the side of wanting to you know, develop more behavioral coping strategies and cognitive coping strategies, you know, not saying that medication isn't helpful because it can be life-saving. And I've seen that over and over again, particularly when we're talking about PTSD and depression. But at the same time, I do think that so often individuals who have PTSD feel such a sense of helplessness and lack of control and helping them find some ways in those moments to deal with things differently seems to be, I think, a real impact you know, empowering way or path for them that might be, you know, might take some time, but can certainly reduce the symptoms and give them a, a more of a sense of control. That's true. Now, I, oftentimes I, I see patients that don't, they say they don't have time for counseling, but I really try to impose on them that this is, I mean, this is a very effective treatment and I think it's worth a trial for every patient to try psychotherapy for PTSD. Well, it's, it's, it's difficult. And one of the hardest things I think about getting people into treatment sometimes, especially when you're talking about PTSD, is the fact that there is going to be some discomfort and there's going to be some, you know, bad days and maybe some worse days than mm -hmm. the average day before things get better. And that can be really difficult when you feel like you're struggling every day just to kind of mentally survive, to think about, mm -hmm. okay, I'm doing something and I'm going to come out the other side of it and be happier that, man, I don't know that I can go, you know, I can go through that tunnel. I feel like I'm kind of like barely hanging on to the train, you know, as it is. Yeah, but I think some of the reluctance for patients to seek therapies, they think that 
that there's only one type of therapy is trauma-focused therapy. But even if they're not in, ready to engage in trauma-focused therapy, they could, for example, do you know therapy to help them sleep better or relaxation techniques. So there's a lot of therapies out there that'll be effective to re reduce the symptoms, and then later they could they could engage in trauma-focused therapy. That's what I like to tell patients because a lot of times they're reluctant to go because they think that all the therapy is trauma-focused. And I think that is such an excellent, excellent point because, you know, one of the benefits, I think, sometimes of medication can be it gives that person enough energy to deal with those more, those longer-term coping strategies. I had a, a patient one time telling me, you know, it's pretty hard to talk about while you're drowning when you're in the water. You, know, so you need a life raft. You need a life, a lifeline. Once you're out of the water, at some point, it might be important to talk about, man, why was I drowning? Why, how did I get in this water? Why, you know, why, why don't I know how to swim? But at the time that I'm in it, it doesn't really helpful. You know, it's not helpful for somebody to be sitting in the boat kind of going, let's talk about how you ended up here you know, and, and why you haven't learned to swim and what you would do differently in the future. I mean, all those things might be helpful down the road, but they're not really helpful right now. Yeah, that's an excellent analogy, Jody. I like that. I think I'm going to use that with my patients. <laughs> well, feel free to. I, can't, I wish it was mine, but I, I have a former, a former patient to, to give credit to that, to give credit for that. Thank you so much uh, for coming on the show today. This is really a very helpful and I think important topic. And I think we're just at the beginning of trying to, to maybe develop even more effective strategies because this is something I think that's not going to go away. Uh, but thank you again for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. Um, PTSD, I think all of us know, isn't about what's wrong with you. It's about what's happened to you. And I think hopefully we as professionals can get better and better at helping people heal from life-threatening trauma so that it doesn't continue to impact their lives once the event is over. Thanks again, again, again for listening to Thread of Evidence today. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest has been Dr. Sanjay Padia. And the topic has been PTSD, the psychology and law. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.